Good morning, everyone. God did not hear that. Good morning, everyone. All right. Uh, Matt forgot an announcement. Um, you let him do announcements, and the whole thing goes to him. Um, you're going to want to go home and watch the news right after service, because I was told uh, that if a person like me was going to do something like this, that hell would be freezing over. And uh, so I'm sure CNN is going to cover that throughout everything. And, and there's about uh, 10 to 12 Catholic school nuns right now rolling over in their graves. So if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I like, I'm so sorry. Like, it all worked. See? You were right. I love you. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay. Go with me, if you will. Um, it's going to go up on the screen, but I'm going to read it. Go with me, if you will, into Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Now, Isaiah 43 makes for a great Facebook post. It makes for great greeting cards, and it's popular, and you see it spread out over everywhere. But there's so much in these two verses that I want to break them down a little bit. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Now, that is a metaphorical line in the sand from God if I've ever heard it. He's not saying, like, try not to think about it so much. Or, you know, put your mind on something else. No, he is saying, forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. In other words, that has to stop. That is over. And through Isaiah, God continues, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I got to be honest with you. Like, when I read that, I get all, like, tingly all over. Right? Like, you know, like a new thing? That's cool. And, like, don't you feel it? Yeah, I kind of, like, do feel it, you know? And, and we wonder, like, well, what's it going to be? You know, is it going to be like a new connection or new opportunity or maybe something for my family? I got to tell you, when I, every time I read Isaiah 43, like this is how I feel. Like this. Next slide. <laughs> this is how I feel when I read Isaiah 43. Sometimes, though, when we read Isaiah 43, we think that God is going to give us something that we want. God doesn't always give us what we want, but in my experience, he always gives us what we need. And sometimes, I think we want God to throw us a party when what we really need is an intervention. And I want to take you into the best new thing that God ever did in my life. And he did it on the worst day of my life. June 30th, 2000. My dad died. Now, I don't know if there is a good time to lose your father. I don't think there is. But when I lost my dad, it was not a good time for me. I was 26 years old, and I was what I think psychologists call a problem child. And so um, I was hard. I gave my parents a hard time. There's no doubt about that. But, and I was starting to become a man. You know, you start bonding with your father, and you realize that, you know, maybe your father, you know, wasn't so, you know, he kind of knew some things, you know, as you start to become a man. And the best way I could describe losing my father was, it was like we were in mid-conversation, and uh, like the call just dropped, and I couldn't get it back. We've all had that experience where we're hitting the thing, right, and we can't get it back. And I needed that connection at that time. He was, uh, he was young when he died. He was 54, and he was young for how he died. Um, he golfed 18 holes on a Friday, got sick over the weekend, checked into a hospital on Monday, got worse on Tuesday, moved to intensive care on Wednesday, and Friday he died. 
somewhere Tuesday, Wednesday, <clears throat> excuse me, the doctor said, like, this is, this is serious. This is serious. Like, if you want to start calling some family and friends, now's the time to do it. You want your pastor, your priest, now's the time to do it. And so we did. And I had one of the most, like, the, the 48 hours was one of the most surreal experiences of my life because I sat in my dad's intensive care unit, and, and I watched as, like, one by one, all his family and friends. I tried to sit for as many of them as I could. I, God forbid, I hope you never visit intensive care unit, but, like, four people at a time can't commit. Like, one person comes in and one person goes out. So I watched his family and his friends have these, like, these very private, one-on-one, -on -one, but also final moments with my dad. And, uh, you know, they said things to him I don't think they ever said, expressed things they don't ever expressed. And I found out things I never knew. And uh, I always felt so sorry for my father in the years after that because he missed it. Somewhere in that Wednesday, Thursday, he lost consciousness. And he didn't hear or see anyone that came visited him. Now, maybe he got it in a way that we can't perceive through our awakened five senses, but in the way we understand it, he missed it. And it was the first in a long line of things my dad missed. He saw my nieces being born. Uh, they were very young when he passed, but um, he missed them growing up and all the great things that they have done. He missed uh, me, me getting married and, and, and his other two grandchildren being born. He missed some of the things that like a son does that you want your father to wink at you for. My mom's become like a world traveler. Uh, she's like a 16-year-old with a frequent flyer thing now. It's killing me. Yeah. And, and, and he's missed like all those trips, all those golden years. And so on Friday after he died, um, my mom sent me back to uh, my childhood home, their home. And I, we were living at the hospital for that week, so I don't know, it's a cleanup or whatever. And I, I, I went down this hallway that we have that leads to like TV room where we would spend a lot of time. And, and on, this hall, on the wall of this hallway were like every picture of weddings, proms, confirmations, communions, all, all like signature family events. And I locked onto this one picture of my dad. And it was from his 40th birthday party. And his 40th birthday party was a big event for us. Um, I was 12 at the time. We hadn't had a family event in a while. And it was like the first like, event where I wasn't like a little kid running under the tables and stuff. And um, we threw him a surprise party and a roast, which was <laughs> funny. And um, my mom worked at Seton Hall University at the time. And she rented out the president's banquet room for this party. Now, the Reddicks from Union, New Jersey, we're not President's Hall type people, <laughs> but we were that night. And I'll never forget my dad at the end of that night um, getting up to thank everyone for coming. And uh, uh, it, it was like very funny, but it was also very emotional. And I like, saw a side of my dad I never saw before. And I'm, I don't remember a word he said, but I certainly remember everything that I felt. So here I am standing in the house that he gave us, looking at this picture just a few hours after he passed away. And um, I looked down, and he was holding in his hands the two things that killed him. He was holding a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And my dad was an alcoholic. But please don't mistake what I just said for any of the stereotypical things that we associate with alcoholism. My father never embarrassed us with his drinking. He never uh, crashed the car or stayed out late. In fact, he never went out. It was actually quite the opposite. I, I don't think he missed five days of work in 30 years. 
He left, home, left our house at 6 a.m., came home at 6 p.m. He was a great provider. He was a pioneer in industry. He served his country in Vietnam. And at 7 a.m. every Sunday morning, he mowed the Little League field. My dad was a great man. And I've come to understand his drinking as I've gotten older and closer to his age. But I often have this wild thought. I often wonder if at his 40th birthday party, what if at the end, well, let me back up. I did some math on my dad's drinking and smoking. And rough estimates, he started when he went to Vietnam and he was 18, so two, three cigarettes, beers a day, those are conservative estimates. But over the course of that time, between then and the time he died, that's about 40,000 beers and cigarettes. So you know what happens when you smoke 40,000 cigarettes and drink 40,000 beers? You die. And so I often have this like, weird thought for many years that I wonder if at my father's birthday, 40th birthday party, um, he had gotten up at the end of that night and said, you know, this is, thanks everyone for coming, but this is a beer and cigarette 30,000. I'm on my way to 40,000. Now that would have been unacceptable to everyone who was visiting there. There would have been protests. His friends would have been like, Bill, you have to stop. This is going to be bad. You're going to get sick. You're going to get a disease. You're going to die. You, you, this has to stop. In fact, this has, you, you need to forget all of that, and something new has to happen. But obviously, that wild scenario never happened. But what also never happened is nobody protested to that beer and that cigarette. And here's why. That beer and that cigarette didn't kill him. But it killed him just a little bit, but not so much anyone can notice. And I often wonder if we do things, and maybe not as explicit as drinking and smoking. And just as a side note, if someone, if someone is here is dealing with some issues like that, I hope you can hear the pain in my voice. And I would hope that would inspire you to seek out some help for that. But I often wonder if, do we do things that maybe not as explicit as that, but, but we do things we know aren't good for us, and they kill us just a little bit, but not so much that anyone can notice. Or worse, do we not do things? Do we not reconcile, give forgiveness, deal with something, face something that we have to face, which is the theme of this series, and by not facing it, it's killing us just a little bit, but not so much that anyone can notice. I often wonder if we would have been better served throwing my father an intervention rather than a party. Now, my brother, my mother, and I, we, we talked about, um, we talked about confronting him, and we had our conversations, and, but we never took that, that next step. We never took that hard line in the sand that said, this has to stop, and you need to go into some kind of a treatment, or this has to end. And for all the reasons why we don't confront people in our lives, it would have been excruciating to do that. It would have been painful, it would have been difficult, it would have been embarrassing, it would have been hard for us to do that. And maybe it would have been embarrassing for him. Maybe he would have had to take time off of work and to go into treatment. Maybe it would have affected his career. And at the end of the day, we didn't want to do that to him. That's the single biggest mistake we made. If we had thrown him an intervention, we would not have been doing it to him. We would have been doing it for him. In fact, throwing an intervention may have been the greatest act of love we could have ever done for him. But we didn't. A lot of the same people that were on my dad's 40th birthday party were the same people that came through his intensive care unit. And I often wonder if they do, they had wished they had done something about it. After my dad died, um, 
I went into the anger phase of grieving really hard. You know, there's stages like shock, denial, anger. And I went into the anger phase of grieving very hard. I, I perfected the anger phase of grieving. And I stayed there for 10 years. 10 years, angry. Angry at my father, angry at God. And then something happened at 10 years that actually caused me to double down on my anger. And something happened that really took my anger to a very dark and ugly place. My wife and I had children. God bless us with two beautiful boys. And, and I, I, as I would look at those children, I, I would think to myself, I can't imagine, I can't imagine loving anything more than these children. And as I looked at those children, I, I got so angry with my father. Because I thought, I can't imagine that I would do something to my health or do something to me that would rob me of a second with them. Or worse, rob them of a second with their father. And I got so angry with my dad, and I got so, uh, I was like, how could he have been so selfish? How could he have been so um, careless? It, it was, we were all affected by this. He, there was a storm that was created in our home by alcoholism, and, and he pulled all of us. We were all in that storm with him. And there was a part of him that, that, like, I look back and I'm like, how could you have not seen that this was not going to go well? And I doubled down on my anger, and it got to a bad place. And I'm going to tell you, if you'd have hit me at the wrong moment, the wrong time, with the wrong thing, I mean, it was bad news. It was bad news. I mean, I'd make a mess you wouldn't want to have to clean up. To the ladies in the room, I want you to pay very close attention to how the men react to what I say. Next. Ladies, we also have to make a deal. In no way, shape, or form are you allowed to elbow your husband or boyfriend, <laughs> or are you allowed to look at him and go, or, or one of these, I wonder, who he's, I wonder who that sounds like. You can't do anything like that, okay? But here's the deal. You see, when a man has a problem, when a man has a problem, he will try and fix that problem before, he, before anyone figures out that he has a problem. And when a man is weak, he will try and eliminate that weakness before he figures out that anyone, anyone figures out that he's weak. And if, when a man is struggling with something, he will deal with that struggle before he lets anyone know that he is vulnerable. And as I learned the hard way, that anger, I mean, that, that isolation can spiral into a pretty dark place fast. And it is much easier and much more acceptable for a man to say that he is angry than to admit that he is hurt. I realized that everyone was caught in the storm of my anger, was dealing with it in one way, shape, or form, indirectly or directly. And the breaking point came for me a couple years ago. Um, I run these business groups, and um, it's like guys like me, sports, fitness type business owners. And so we meet um, in groups of 12, um, and we had three meetings in a row, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Friday. And the way the meetings work is each member of the group can come up in front of the room and can talk about whatever they want to talk about and get advice from other people in the room, somewhat like community groups. And three weeks in a row, we had a member of the group who recently lost a parent. 
And three weeks in a row, they used their time up in front of the room to ask for advice on how can I deal with this? How can I go through this grieving process? How can I get through this and overcome this? And three weeks in a row, I'm ashamed to say my advice was the same. Don't do what I'm doing. Almost a quote. Don't, don't, don't take the path that I'm taking. Get yourself some help. See, I, I'm stuck in the anger phase of, of grief. So whatever you do, do, just don't do what I'm doing. You take care of yourself. And after the third week of giving that advice, I usually drive straight home when I have to do something. I didn't that night. I drove all over Red Bank and Shrewsbury, MoCo. And um, I'll be honest, I was disgusted with myself. I thought to myself, you're supposed to be the leader of these men. They come to you for advice, and the best advice that their leader could give is don't do what I'm doing. Take another path in what I've taken. I remember thinking, what a hypocrite you are. When, I came, when we came back to Park Church, we had been away from faith for a while, and um, I decided that it was time for me to get reacquainted with the Bible. And uh, when you're a Catholic school kid, you read the Bible, like, all the time. And, um, and so I, I really needed to get reacquainted with it. And, and I got this, actually, this Bible right here that's, like, designed to read in a year and stuff like that. And um, I got stuck on the story of Jonah because I realized that as I read the story of Jonah, I thought, wow, this, this is, like, eerily familiar to me in some way. And I really couldn't put my finger on it. But it, it's so important what we're going to talk about today. I want to break down this story for you, but I am not a theologian like Matt and like some other people who speak here. So I'm going to break down the, 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 uh, the story of Jonah in a language that I can teach you and that you can, we can all understand, okay? So we're going to break down the story of Jonah in emojis. Okay. <laughs> so let's go through it. Here we go. So anyone that's like under 25, if you don't know what that first one is, grab one of us old people. We'll tell you what that one is, okay? Okay, so here's how the story goes. God calls Jonah. And so the story goes, God calls Jonah and said, Jonah, go down to the city of Nineveh. You got to preach to these people. They're all messed up. And the Bible says that Jonah arose and went in the opposite direction. Jonah ran from God. Jonah went down to a port called Joppa and boarded a boat that was on its way to a city called Tarshish. And he boarded that boat with a bunch of other people with him headed in that direction as far away from God as he could get. He's on the boat. And now the Bible says that then God hurled a wind. And the wind caused a storm. And the storm caused a wave. And the wave started threatening the very safety of the boat, that the boat might sink because of this storm and these waves. The captain of the ship... Um, goes down into the hold of the ship, and he finds Jonah asleep. And, he's, and, and he gets angry with Jonah. He says, Jonah, we're, we're about to go down. How can you sleep? And as I read this, and, and, and much of this I gleaned from the commentary that was in this Bible, it wasn't just the text, and I thought, wow, you know what, this sounds like exactly like my father. This sounds exactly like my dad. You know, we were all caught in the storm of his alcoholism. And it was a part of him that was almost like oblivious to it. Like he didn't think this was going to have an effect on his health. And I started to get really angry at my father. And I would almost ask the same question to him. How could you have slept? 
And I saw how much this, the story of Jonah was so similar to the story of my father. And as I made the, 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 the connection of how inagulous Jonah was to my father, I could not help but make the connection of how similar the story of Jonah was to me. Had to take a little bit of a hard look in the mirror. You see, because I, I, I was roughly oblivious for 15 years to the storm that my anger would cause. And what I found, just like my father found out, is that when I go in the wrong direction, I take everybody else with me. And there's some collateral damage done that way. You know what's funny? Is that if you'd have taken this, the picture of my father on his 40th birthday, and you'd have taken a picture of me on my 40th birthday, um, and you had held them side by side, the only difference you would have saw is that you could see what was killing him. You couldn't see what was killing me. What was killing me was hurt, pain, and anger. So, I knew I had to do something. And I was driving around and around Shrewsbury and Red Bank. I knew I needed help. And so the next day, I went where we all go for help, Google. <laughs> and um, I Googled Red Bank therapy or something like that. And, and, the, and one of the first ones that came up was Dr. Karen Herrick, the Center for the Children of Alcoholics. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. I was like, how, 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 how coincidental is this, came, this comes up like this? And I had to realize, like Jonah did, because when, when they threw Jonah over, because Jonah basically said to the people on the ship, they started to question who was Jonah. And they say, you're the cause of this storm. You're the problem. Who are you? Now, what Jonah says is very instructive to uh, maybe another sermon that Matt will do. And I'm going to put it in a little box right here. And band, when you guys slap the bass, it's going to, every week, it's going to go out into the congregation. So they, they confronted Jonah, and they got angry at Jonah, and they say, who are you? And his response is so important to us as a church, because he said, I am a Hebrew. I worship the God who created the land and the sea. So hold on a second. Jonah, who ran from God, who, who caused a storm, who pulled a bunch of people into the storm, and in the middle of the mess he caused, he decides to go take a nap. Just because he messed up all those things does not change who he is. And I would say if we mess up and we screw up and we make mistakes and we do things wrong, it does not change who we are as God's people. That's forever. So the story goes, so Jonah says, I'm the problem to the rest of the crew on the boat. I'm the problem. Get rid of me, and you'll get rid of the storm. So it didn't look like they debated it long, and they took Jonah and threw him over. <laughs> you know? Happens in like one line, right? It's pretty quick, yeah. And, 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 so, and, and so a whale comes and swallows up Jonah. Now, God sent the whale to swallow up Jonah. And, and, and now, I, Look, I'm sure that Jonah was very grateful for this, the rescue, but like a rowboat would have done. Would have been fine, right? Like, you know, a rowboat. And we live by the beach. I mean, we know what fish smell like on the outside. <laughs> Could you imagine what it must feel, smell like in the inside? I mean, it must be bad, right? But I also don't want us to overlook the point that the same God that sent the storm also sent the rescue. And so there's Jonah in the belly of the whale, the darkest place that you could imagine. And Jonah cries something that I think is the whole reason why we gather here. 
likeness. Maybe one of the only prayers that we need to know. From the belly and the beast, I want you to shout it when you see it. Jonah cried. No. Like you mean it. Jonah cried. No. Let's not step over the fact that God has delivered us into a church where you can reach forward, grab one of those connect cards, write your name, write your phone number, and just write help on it, and someone will call you. Let's not forget that. So I, I commit to, to counseling with Dr. Herrick. And I, 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 made a, I said, I'm going to go every week. Big time commitment. Big financial commitment. Didn't take insurance. I said, I'm the problem. I've got to figure this out. And I went. And it was great. You know, it was great because I think there's something therapeutic just saying things out loud. You know, in addition to the counseling that you receive on what you say. But it was, I started to feel better. I started to talk a lot about things. I started to get some of that anger out. And about three or four months into the therapy, I'm babbling on about something. And... And she just goes, stop, 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 stop. And I'm like, what do you do? And she said, you know, we could spend the next three or four years you coming in here every week talking about everything that's wrong with your father. Or we could start talking about what's wrong with you. We can talk about the one thing your father did wrong. Or we could start talking about some of the things he got right. And that was like reversing thunder. It was like 15 years of anger just gone. And then she asked me some questions that um, changed my life. She said, do you talk to your father? I said, no. She said, why not? I said, you know, because I would be going down the parkway, and I would think of him. And the next thing you know, I'd be having like an out loud screaming match with someone who's been dead 10 years. And by the way, like we learned last week, don't worry, I don't drive down the parkway as fast as we learned our pastor drives down the parkway. <laughs> so Matt, we love you, we need you, 65. 65, 65. <clears throat> and so I said, I don't talk to my father anymore. I stopped that, put away the pictures. And she said, you're a father. Is there any emotion your children could have, any problem they could have, anything they could express that you wouldn't want to hear? No. And she said, what if you really screwed up? I mean, like, like a big one. Like a big one. So bad that you, even your kids saw it, and they were so offended by what you did that they wouldn't talk to you anymore. What would you do? I'd beg, grovel, hands and knees, whatever it took. She said, would you want them to forgive you? Said, of course. She said, don't you think your father knows he screwed up? Yes. You need to talk to your father. And you need to connect with him with a level of honesty that you would want your children to have with you. And you need to offer him a level of forgiveness that you would expect if you made a mistake. Okay. And then she asked me, do you pray? Not anymore. Why not? For the same reason. My prayers were very altar boyish, and I'd get in there, and then I was so angry with God, my anger would come out, and I didn't want to go there. And then she gave me the best advice anyone could ever have in my prayer life. She said to me, then pray your anger. You see, I wanted her to throw me a pity party 
and she threw me an intervention. And I'll tell you, that was the most transform transformative advice I, I think I'd ever been given because what I found out is that most of the prayers that I had were pretty lame. And most of the prayers that was not really praying to God, but more of a prayer performance and that I was showing up in front of God the way that I thought I should be and not the actual way that I was. And I often think, if, if, and what I found in experience is that Sometimes do we have to be like, you know, God, you're the best, you're awesome. Like in Jesus, he was so great too, and you're the best, you're awesome, 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 awesome. And thank you, thank you, thank you, and we say a few prayers and we end it. Or do we just want to be like, be honest and real and say, God, you know what? Help. It's a hot mess up in here. Like I am angry, I am depressed, I am fearful, and, and people at work and church and school, they think I got it all together, but when I'm alone, I'm, I'm lonely and I'm isolated, I'm, I'm depressed, and I gotta tell you, God, I'm really angry too, and there's this one person at work, if they say one more word, I could blow. <laughs> what I've found is that when we, or say when I, approach God with that kind of honesty, that God did his best work on me when I was broken. And I think that's the time if we can approach him with honesty, that that's when we can get a connection. And so many of us are parents. And can we imagine if as parents, can we imagine if our children came home and, 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 they, and, and they came in the door and, they, and you said, hey, how was school? It was great. How are your friends? They're great. How's everything? They're great. But secretly, they, they went up into their room and they closed the door and they were angry and depressed and sad and lonely. Could we, that is a gut-wrenching feeling, I think, for any parent to think that your children might be hiding who they really are or what they're really going through. We would want our children to come to us. There's nothing that we wouldn't want to heal or work through or maybe forgive or whatever. We would want that to happen. So I would ask us this. If there's nothing that our children cannot bring to us, is there anything, no feeling, no mess up, no mistake, no screw up that we can't bring to our father? I hope that we would pray that if God is going to do a new thing in us, that we would hope that he throws us the intervention and not the party. And I kind of want to end open to one suggestion. If you were going to throw an intervention for someone and you were going to put that on, who would that person have to be? That, that, that person would, is not like a casual acquaintance or somebody you know at work or a, or a casual friend. That would have to be somebody that you care so deeply about and you love so deeply that you cannot stand by any longer watching them go in the wrong direction. So I'd ask you to be open to the suggestion that if God is throwing you an intervention at the moment, that you receive that as a declaration of how deeply he loves you. I love this church. I think we're so lucky to have each other. Let's pray. Father, we know that some of us are sitting here, but we're running from you. Some of us are in a storm, and some of us have pulled some other people into that storm with us. Some of us are in the belly of a whale, a dark place. I would ask that you remove everything from us that would prevent us from seeing that you have delivered us to a place 
where we can cry help and someone will answer. Father, I'd ask that if you're going to do a new thing in us, please love us enough to throw us an intervention and not a part. In Jesus' name we pray.